You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Today we'll see one thing that amazes Jesus, as well as one thing that should never surprise us. In Mark 6, 1 through 30, it's it's somewhat of a fascinating passage because we see uh, the tragedy of unbelief and the cost of, of following Jesus. Uh, those two things that are uh, kind of smashed together. Two pictures and stories of unbelief in Mark 6, 1 through 5, and Mark six fourteen through 29. Uh, sandwiched in between is this sending of the disciples out on mission. Um, and <clears throat> uh, perhaps more than any other passage up to this point, I think this, this one gives us a sense of the the missionary training purpose of the gospel of Mark. It kind of uh, shows us how the gospel equips us to, uh, to, know, and follow, uh, to know and follow Christ. And, uh, and thinking about what it means to, to know and follow Christ and to consider the cost of discipleship, um, I think here uh, Mark in particular uh, is, is presenting the, the gospel uh, accounts to us in a way that drives home this message of of, of preparing us to know what it means to follow Christ, to, to know what it means to, to count the cost of, of following Jesus. And so <clears throat> when, when I think about this passage, I think in some ways it's, it's kind of a, a refreshing uh, picture of what it means to set expectations. Uh, Jesus uh, sometimes calls us and doesn't tell us what to expect um, when we get there. But here he tells his disciples pretty clearly what to expect. Uh, it's, it's helpful uh, to have this picture of expectation. Uh, I think all of us like clear expectations. Um, I was listening to a, a comedian uh, recently, and uh, my wife's probably rolling her eyes because she thinks I'm going to do what he did. But uh, I'm not going to tell his joke uh, as he tells his joke. But uh, I couldn't help but laugh as he was talking uh, somewhat about the differing expectations between when you're in your 20s and when you're in your 30s or, or just when you're kind of young and when you're, when you're older. Um, he says, when you're, when you're younger and your friend calls you and says, hey, let's go hang out, you're like, I'm in, let's go do it, right? Like you're willing to leave before you know where you're going, right? Like you don't even know what you're doing. You're down for whatever. You're just willing to go. That's just kind of uh, how it works. Some of you are old souls at a young body and you're like, that's not me. That's okay. Um, But a lot of times when you're young, you're willing to go and you'll figure it out along the way, right? It doesn't matter where you're going. You just want to be with your friends. Well, when you get older, if your friend calls, number one, um, (laughs) say your friend calls, uh, you then uh, have to to kind of think through some things. You want, you want to set some, some clear expectations and boundaries. You want to know where are we going? Who's coming with us? What are we going to do when we get there? How late are they open? Is it loud? You, you begin to say things like, you know what? I'm going to drive separate, right? Like, I'm going to drive on my own terms. I'll get there when I want to get there, and I'll leave when I want to leave. You, you want expectations. We all like expectations in some way, shape, or form, we want some form of expectations. I mean, uh, you think about this expectations, you take it from uh, going out when you're younger, when you're old. Just think about tonight at the Super Bowl. Uh, imagine being a player for the Kansas City Chiefs uh, who are about to win the Super Bowl, probably 27 to 24 tonight. Um, this is my prediction. You heard it here. Um, and uh, and they, uh, they go out, they're in the tunnel. You're an offensive lineman for the Chiefs. 
Imagine not having any expectation of what you're about to face when you step on the field. If you are an offensive lineman and you do not uh, expect to face serious opposition when the ball is snapped, you're in a world of pain. And your quarterback is in a world of pain, right? Like you, you've got to have some clear expectations of what you're going to face if you're going to be able to perform on the field. And, and, and in some ways, this passage helps give us some baseline expectations uh, for what it's like for us to, to step on the field, so to speak, in following Jesus and, and living on mission. Um, <clears throat> Mark 4 tells us the parables of the kingdom. Mark 5 displays Jesus' authority and power. Mark 6 says, here's what's to expect if you follow Jesus. And, and particularly, <clears throat> I want us to see um, uh, some lessons, uh, eight lessons in particular of what it means uh, to live life on mission. Or another way of saying that is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to join him in his mission. Um, and if we're going to live life on mission, I think Jesus sets some expectations and gives us some lessons to prepare us. It tells us that Jesus goes from the ministry he had been doing around the Sea of Galilee and over the Decapolis to the region of, um, and to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was an insignificant town. Uh, I grew up in, in Arkansas. You might think that's an insignificant state. But uh, near Arkansas is an even more insignificant state to us, and that's Oklahoma. Um, and in Oklahoma, um, there's this little town called Chicota. Uh, how many of you know about Chicota, Oklahoma? Anybody? So a few of you know about Chicota, Oklahoma. The thing that makes Chicota, Oklahoma uh, important is that's where Carrie Underwood came from. All right. And so uh, when you think about Chicota, Oklahoma, from now on, you're going to think about Carrie Underwood. Um, and Carrie Underwood coming from Chicota, Oklahoma, meant that Chicota, Oklahoma went from being a no-name town to being a really uh, popular town, at least for a little bit in the early 2000s. Right. Um, and there in this insignificant town in Oklahoma, uh, somebody famous came from. And there's stories like this all over the place. I was trying to think of there's this place on the way from Memphis to my hometown in Arkansas. There's literally a town I can't even remember uh, off the top of my head that they have this big sign. And there's, uh, of course, it's a country star is somewhere from this small town uh, in Arkansas. And um, it's so insignificant. I don't remember the town and I don't remember the country <laughs> singer, but they do. Right. Like they know it's in a big deal. Well, in some ways, Jesus has become a big deal. But he's coming back to a pretty insignificant town. I mean, Nazareth isn't even really mentioned in the Old Testament. It's, uh, it's small and insignificant in the eyes of many. And, um, and we see in the, the Gospel of John, uh, Nathaniel says, what good can come from Nazareth? Like, it's this uh, insignificant place. What, what good can come from there? And, and we see here that this is where Jesus grew up. And he comes back and he's with his mom and his brothers. We actually find out the name of four of Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And Simon. Uh, we see that he has sisters who are likely married. Uh, and it's very possible that Joseph has died at this point because Jesus is referred to as the son of Mary. And odds are the people in Nazareth aren't uh, exactly uh, tracking with the virgin birth yet. So uh, it's, it's not so much that they're saying that Jesus is born in a miraculous way as much as they're stating that likely uh, Joseph is dead and, uh, and, and Jesus is, is in essence the... Uh, the person who cares for his family. <clears throat> and, and so the people of Nazareth <clears throat> that Jesus comes back to are familiar with him, but when Jesus comes back to them, he does what was common for him. He goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach, and everyone is amazed at his teaching. 
And not only were they amazed at his teaching, but they had also heard about the things he had done. It said that they marveled uh, at what such mighty works done by his hand. <clears throat> but then the story turns in verse 3. It's not what you expect. When I bet you when Carrie Underwood comes to Dakota, people aren't like, who is she? She's one of us. You know, they're all like, let's go see Carrie. You know, like they treat her like, like she's family, right? Like we're from the same hometown. <clears throat> when Jesus shows up and everyone goes to hear him, but rather than really considering his words and, and moving beyond just kind of amazement to belief, it says in their heart, their familiarity was coupled with pride and it led to disbelief. Because it says that they say to themselves, <clears throat> is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not these his sisters here with us? And it says they took offense at him. And the word offense here is actually used in the uh, rest of the Gospel of Mark to, to kind of indicate uh, obstacles or obstruction from people coming to faith and following Jesus. Here their offense is, uh, is, stems from their unbelief, and their unbelief was a, an obstacle of them following Jesus. I mean, Jesus coming to his own hometown and not being accepted is like a president, not winning his home state, or even worse, not winning his home county, right? Uh, like, this, this is what you would expect, that he would at least be accepted where he came from. But that's not at all what happens. And in fact, Jesus says, quoting a proverb that would have been common in both Jewish and Greco-Roman context, a prophet is not without honor except in his own household, in his own hometown, with his own relatives, he says. And it's striking here, we get to the heart of um, the first lesson that Jesus gives us. And it's this, it's that unbelief limits the work of God. Unbelief limits the work of God. One commentator said it in a way that <clears throat> struck me. He said, apart from faith, exposure to the gospel inoculates as often as it enlivens. Exposure to the gospel inoculates as often as it enlivens. What it means is it can, it can desensitize us to it. We, we can get so familiar with it that we don't see it as a message for us. And rather than it enlivening us and drawing us to faith, it can harden us and we can, we can have a, a familiarity or an ignorance that's coupled with pride that leads us to unbelief. And what's amazing here is that it says, Mark tells us that Jesus looks at their unbelief and rather than being angry, Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Jesus is less amazed by their sin than he is by their unbelief. Somewhat surprising that Jesus is surprised by their unbelief. And yet he is. But even more surprising, we see here that he says in verse 5 that he could not do mighty work there. He could not do mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. <laughs> I love it. It says he could not do, but he's God, so he did. <laughs> uh, right? Like uh, the, the pattern of the picture and the environment of unbelief was such that Jesus could not do any work there except that he did a little bit. But, it, but it's a striking statement. Jesus could not do any work there. To think that unbelief limits God. One author <clears throat> says, How could the omnipotent Son of God be bound, limited by the unbelief of Nazareth? And I love this statement. He could not do miracles there, because he would not. 
in the face of unbelief. He could not because he would not. What awakens and uh, calls forth the heart and the hand of God is faith. What awakens and calls forth the heart and the hand of God is faith. We, we saw just in Mark chapter 5 in the woman with the, the blood flow and in Jairus this picture of faith, of trusting God. And it's in response to faith that God acts. So it should not be, surprise us that in the face of unbelief, God withholds himself. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, <clears throat> Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So here we see that, that Jesus will not respond in the face of unbelief. He will not work in the face of unbelief. And, and what I want to do is just to encourage you. I don't know if, if you've yet to put your faith in Christ. I plead with you not to commit the same tragedy that the people in Nazareth did. Not to take whatever familiarity you have with Jesus or even ignorance that you have of Jesus and combine that with pride that thinks, I don't need him to tell me what to do. I already know what that book says. I've seen enough. I can't tell you how many times I see people reject a God that's not in the Bible. A Jesus that isn't the one that's filling the pages of the Gospels. Who says that God is just an old dude in the sky, a big old killjoy. Uh, who, who think because of my circumstances that God didn't come through for me when I needed Him. So why should I bother with Him? We judge God based on our circumstances and our experience or we judge God off a, a thought or a hint of what He must be like based on what we've seen or heard others say. I think sometimes in our, in our climate, in our community, it's, it's almost as if you're a Christian who really believes what the Bible says about Jesus and faith in Christ as necessary for salvation and our need to repent of our sin. <clears throat> like, if you're a Christian, you, you might as well be a moron. Like, that's a Greek word for a fool. Or at best, you're naive. Sweet Christians, they don't know any better. Right? Like, that's sometimes the climate that it feels like, man, I just... Why would you believe? It's just easier to not believe than, than it is to believe at times. And yet, <clears throat> so often it, it, it is our familiarity and our ignorance coupled with our pride. Us thinking that we know, or us being blind to what we don't know, and thinking that we can know what's best. Unbelief limits the work of God. <clears throat> he could not because he would not in the face of unbelief. Do you have a believing heart? Or are you like those in Nazareth who didn't believe? <clears throat> I, I want Jesus uh, to, to, to be amazed at the faithfulness of God that's present in our church. I don't want Jesus to be amazed at the unbelief that's present among us. Unbelief limits the work of God. The second <clears throat> lesson is we have a mission. It might seem like it goes without saying, but we transition from this uh, picture of rejection in uh, verses 1 through 5 to the second half of verse 6 as Jesus goes about uh, to the other villages and he continues teaching. And then he calls his disciples to join him in the work. And it tells us that he sends them out. He gives them authority over demons and to, uh, to heal the sick. And he, he tells them to proclaim his message. Matthew 10, 7 says that Jesus told them to share the same message that he shared. Repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. Jesus has come. The king has come. Repent and, and trust in God. And what, what we have here in Mark 6 is a unique mission. This is a unique mission within the ministry of Jesus that he gave to the disciples. But this unique ministry, that's a short-term mission trip, if you will. Literally, they're going ahead of Jesus and coming back to Jesus. And then Jesus is probably going behind them to the places that they went. This unique short-term mission is in many ways foreshadowing the universal mission that Jesus will give to the church following his resurrection. It's, it's foreshadowing that mission. Their, their mission is unique and it's short in term, uh, but, but in many ways it's preparatory for what Christ is going to do and what he's going to call every believer to do. He tells them to go out and to go to where people are and invite them to trust in the king, to, to believe in the gospel. He, he tells them to go to where they are and to tell people whom they do not know that they need to repent and trust in Jesus. Right? In some ways, it's astounding that that's what God would tell us to do. And yet, he tells his disciples to go and do that. And he tells them as they go and declare his message, he empowers them to also display his power. In a unique way to heal uh, the sick and to cast out demons. Just as Jesus, through his miracles, gives a, uh, a preview of the coming kingdom, so he tells his disciples to go and give a preview of the coming kingdom. They are, so to speak, to declare and to display the good news of Jesus. That's what Jesus sent them out to do. The mission is about Jesus, who he is and what he's done and what it means to respond to him. And they go out and they seek to tell others about Jesus and to serve others by showing them the love and the compassion of Jesus. So in their unique mission, we have a picture of our mission. And, and here's how we know that they, they were focused on Jesus and not on themselves. Look down at verse 14. King Herod heard of this, what the disciples had been doing. And notice what it said. For Jesus' name had become known. No doubt Jesus had made his own name known by the things that he did. But it follows upon the heels of the disciples being sent out uh, to do this work and to proclaim his gospel. And the message gets to Herod. And Herod says that Jesus' name had become known. That's a picture of the mission. The picture of the mission is that we live to make Jesus known. I was just thinking about this phrase that they had, that Jesus's name had become known in the area. And I thought for us, should this not be the goal and the desire of our church that we would so live our lives, that we would so exist as a church that Jesus's name would be made known more known in our community, in our state, and around the world. Truly, it does not matter if people know the name Treasuring Christ Church. But the one thing that does matter is that they know the name of Jesus. They may not know that the laborer among the nations came from here. But when we go, we'll make Jesus known. They may not know that the church planted out of this one in 2025. They may not know that Treasuring Christ Church was the sending church, but that church and that group of believers will go and make Jesus' name known. They may not know that you go to Treasuring Christ Church on campus or in your workplace. I hope you invite them at some point. But they may not know the name of our church, but we cannot fail to live to make Jesus' name known. That's the mission.
That's the, the mission that Jesus gave his disciples within his ministry. It's the mission that he gives us today. We have a mission. And in that mission, the third thing is dependence is a necessity. Notice the list Jesus sends them out with. He charged them to take nothing on their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, that's good, and not to put on two tunics. He, he calls them to go with very little, basically saying to them, that as you go, it will not be what you have, either in your possession or in your skill set, that will enable you to carry out the work, but it will be dependence on me. Some of us, as we seek to follow God at times, I'm guilty of this as well, can hold back from trusting God because we're waiting for a sign. We're, we're waiting for certain circumstances to play out a certain way before we act. Here Jesus says, go, trust me, and I'll prove myself faithful. And I just want to point out a note. Our ladies just finished going through the book of Exodus. You might recall in Exodus 12, when Moses called the Israelites out, Uh, to lead them in the exodus. He told them to take four things. And it's the same four things. A cloak, a belt, sandals, and a staff in hand. The Gospel of Mark, we can't unpack it all, but presents Jesus as a new Moses leading a new exodus. And like the Israelites, we must act with dependence, trusting God not only to deliver us as he did with Israel in the exodus and as Jesus does on the cross, but also to bring a message of deliverance to others. In the mission, dependence is a necessity. It's a feature, not a bug. God made us to be dependent. But he also set some other expectations for us. He told us to expect God to show up. He said, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. The idea is that when you get somewhere, there will be people who will accept you. There will be people who receive you. When we, when we go to, to make Christ known, we can expect that God will show up in people's life. You, you may not see it in every circumstance, in every interaction, but you can see it. I, I love the, the story uh, that's told in the, the little book called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. Uh, I'm forgetting the, the man's name, but this man is like, I think he's like 95, um, and he's sitting in a field. He came from uh, England to America, uh, uh, and he's sitting in a field contemplating his life. And he remembers a sermon that he heard some 80 years ago by a pastor in England who told him a simple gospel message. And some 80 years after hearing the gospel message, as he's sitting in a field on the other side of the world, he repents and trusts in Jesus. Look, that pastor probably preached and he preached and felt like I feel some Sundays afterwards. Like he just threw out a big fat dud. <laughs> but God works in ways that we don't see and ways that we don't know. Do we dishonor God by not expecting him to show up? I think we can. I think we do. We're tempted to doubt that God can really show up, especially through me. Maybe through someone else, but not through me. Here we see that we should expect God to show up. We've seen that unbelief limits the work of God. I don't want my unbelief in carrying out the work of God to limit what he does. So here's the formula. Pray. It's dependence. Expect God to move. 
and act in faith. That's what God calls us to. You may say, man, that's simple, maybe even naive. Perhaps. But it's time and time again what God calls us to. Pray, expect, act. Not only do we expect God to show up, but I appreciate Jesus tells us to expect opposition. Expect opposition, Jesus says, when you go out. If in any place they will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So it says they went out and they proclaimed that the people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. Jesus says as you go, you can expect to face opposition. If they rejected me, they will reject you, he tells his disciples in the Gospel of John. And here's, here's what happens when we hear that. As a Christian, sometimes we think, I remember a while back we preached through the, the Sermon on the Mount. I, I remember being stunned in the Beatitudes. Jesus goes through the kind of Christians we ought to be, mourn over sin, who are merciful and who are meek and all of these things. And you think in your head, sometimes we think, like if we just live a certain way, that we can make Christ appealing in our culture. And I think we ought to seek to live in a way that commends Christ to others. We ought to make our life not an offense so that only the gospel is an offense. You, you ought to live a compelling life that, that seeks to love and demonstrate the compassion and the mercy and the, and the grace of God in your interactions with people. Let your speech be seasoned with salt and full of grace, Paul says to the Colossians, so that you may be able to know how to answer each person as you ought. Like that should be a desire. But here's the thing. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you can live such a, a commendable life but the conclusion of the, the, the Beatitudes gets us in on something. That no matter how you live, and particularly even if you live faithfully as God calls you to, you can expect opposition. Blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for my namesake, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Here he says, expect opposition. <clears throat> and in the face of opposition, there's a few things that we can do. We can become cynical. Some of us are tempted in that direction. If there's going to be opposition, who cares? What's the point? There's the cynic in some of us. Then there's the despairing in some of us. Why is everyone against the gospel? Why so hard? No one's ever going to respond. No one's ever going to listen. What am I doing? Am I doing it right? I don't even know what to say. And we have this, this sense of despair. And then there's the fearful. What am I going to do? I know when I speak. I'm not going to have the right words. They're going to ask me something. I'm not going to know how to answer. And we have this fear that can grip our hearts. But Jesus says, expect opposition, but keep going in humble confidence that God is working despite the opposition. Expect opposition, but keep going in humble confidence. That's how we respond. Humble that recognizes, look, I, I don't know. if you, you might think I'm crazy for believing this. You might think I'm nuts. But can I tell you something that's important to me? Can I share with you what, what Jesus tells us? Do you know what the Bible's all about? Do you know what the message of Christianity is? Here's what Jesus says. Humble confidence in the face of opposition. But then we see that we also must be ready to pay the price. We see this in John the Baptist. <clears throat> it's interesting to note here that... <clears throat> 13, verse 13 says that the disciples went out and they cast out demons, they healed many, they preached and proclaimed the gospel, called people to repent. And then we kind of get this word that Herod hears about it. 
And Herod is like the, the people of Nazareth in that he's also marked by unbelief. And in his unbelief, he's also marked with pride. He lives to please other people rather than to, uh, to please God. And, and we, we get this backstory that when he hears about Jesus, he gets scared because he remembers that he put John the Baptist to death. And he thinks John the Baptist is raised from the dead. And so you can imagine Herod is, is tripping out, right? Like, what is happening? You know, the, the, the accounts I'm hearing of Jesus, it reminds me of what John was like. And it tells us that Herod loved to listen to John. He was interested in what John had to say. He wanted to know about the Messiah that was to come, but he wouldn't believe. And so here he's fearful when he hears of the work of Jesus. But it then tells us this backstory about John the Baptist's death. It tells us how John was preaching against the sin of Herod, of his adultery and even incestuous relationship with his brother's wife, Herodias. And how there's this party that takes place and, and what could only be described as an exploitive situation where this girl dances and pleases the crowd and Herod says, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. She goes back and she talks with her mom and he says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so she does in a hurry. And Herod is grieved when he hears it. He's troubled when he hears it because he loved to listen to John. Even though he wouldn't believe, he loved to listen to John. But fearing the people... More than he feared God, compromised his conscience and ends up beheading John the Baptist and bringing it on a platter to, to all those at the party to give to this girl. And then it tells us the disciples took his body and laid it in the tomb. Now, why record that there? Look at verse 30. Then the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he had done and taught. I think the story of John the Baptist is smushed in between their going out and their coming in to remind us that we have to be willing to pay the price if we're going to follow Jesus. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. 2 Timothy 3, 12-14 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Here's the thing about persecution. Not everything is persecution. Just because someone rejects you doesn't mean you're persecuted. But understand this. We don't seek persecution. We seek faithfulness. And when we seek faithfulness, the Bible tells us that we can expect persecution. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know what it'll mean. I know that in the Bible, John preaches against somebody's sexual immorality and he gets his head cut off. I know when you talk about sin, people don't like to be told they are sinners. I don't like to be told I'm a sinner. I know when you call people to the exclusive faith in Christ so that the Bible compels us to declare that it steps on our inclusive toes. I know that the compassion and the reach of God's love to all sinners sometimes can step on the toes of those who think Jesus should only work in a certain way with a certain group of people. We have to be faithful to who Jesus is and what he has done and let the chips fall where they may. But we must be ready to pay the price. Our final two points I want to bring together, and it's simply this. I'm going to ask uh, Rebecca to come as we transition to the Lord's Supper. As we seek to be willing to pay the price, I, I think the encouragement that comes to us as we look at John's example is that courage comes from confidence in God, not in self. 
and that we must decide today that we'll fear God rather than please people. Courage comes from confidence in God, not in self. I can't read Luke 7, 18 through 23, but it tells us that John had been imprisoned. And in fact, we find elsewhere in the gospel of uh, John <clears throat> that John the Baptist was imprisoned really at the time Jesus began his public ministry. So John's been in prison for some time before he's beheaded. And while he's in prison, uh, he starts to second guess things. And he sends some of his messengers to Jesus and says, are you really the one? Are you the one that's to come? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. He says, you go tell John that the, the lame walk, the blind see, the unclean are purified, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospels proclaimed, starting with the very least, the poor. <clears throat> it's like Jesus is saying to John the Baptist, I really am who you said I was all the way back in John 1.29 when you saw me from afar and you said the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's me, Jesus says. <clears throat> and when I think about where confidence comes from, that confidence isn't in us. Confidence is not in our ability. I think sometimes we mistake what that means. To be a confident Christian is not to be certain of yourself. It's not to be certain of your academic credentials. It's not to be certain of your religious experience. Not to be certain of the church you belong to, the Bible study you've attended. Confidence comes from trusting in God. And what we see in John the Baptist is not a person who was confident in himself. In fact, he doubted himself. He doubted the very message that he proclaimed. And what we see is that God can take our feeble confidence in him and use us to do mighty things for him. He can take our feeble confidence that's weak and often wavers and use us to do great things for him. What an encouragement that in the mission of God, he's not looking for people who are confident in themselves, but he's looking for people who, like John the Baptist, who have decided that I must decrease and he must increase. And when you live that way, you live for, for God and not to please people. <clears throat> the story of Herod is, is one of a compromised conscience. He was not willing to listen to his conscience <clears throat> that convicted of his sin and told him to listen to John's message. There was too much at stake for him as the ruler. Pride couldn't allow him to hear a message of a prisoner. Pride and pleasing people couldn't allow him to do what he knew was, was right. So instead, <clears throat> he compromised his conscience and beheaded John the Baptist. In Herod's life, we see that life is too short to seek to please people rather than please God. And honestly, when I think about just my everyday journey of following Christ as a believer over these last 20 years, I think this might be the message that I need time and time again, how often I've lived to please people. Sometimes it's silly stuff. Sometimes it's more serious stuff. Sometimes because I want to please people, I'm not willing to be honest about my sin. Sometimes because I please people, rather than please God, I'm not willing to speak up about my faith. Sometimes we seek to please people rather than please God, so we just kind of don't do what we know God's calling us to. The courage and the confidence of Peter and John in Acts 4, 19-20 <clears throat> is what I think Jesus is calling us to. When they were <clears throat> faced with imprisonment and beating for proclaiming Jesus, they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
Decide today to fear God rather than please people. Whether it's in your workplace, having integrity, working with a clean conscience, sharing the gospel with a friend, a family member, or a coworker, trusting God to do the next thing he calls you to. Whether you're going or staying, whether it's here or far, live to please God and not others. Jesus lays out these expectations for us as we join him on mission. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful, he says, here's what you can expect. Trust me as you go and know what's coming and be confident, just as we sang a moment ago. He's already won. We're on the winning side. We don't know the final outcome and how all of it plays out, but we know in whom we trust and we live for him. There's no better place than joining God and his mission. Even when it's hard, even when there's opposition, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I wouldn't want us to be anywhere else.